Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September 29, 2016. This is episode 1881 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, since this is a Thursday, this is a listener call show. This is where you call in to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on the speak pipe button as long as you have uh, you know, a microphone on your computer or you can use your phone, I guess, for that as a web browser. And uh, you can leave me a message on speak pipe and send me that. And I'll get an email from the speak pipe people and I'll have you on. We actually had successful use of the speak pipe. Uh, system this uh, this time around. I have like three of the six calls are off of SpeakPipe. I didn't use every call that came in there because I wanted to spread the love around a little bit. But uh, I got six good calls for you set up today. Uh, and let's let's talk about real quick an overview of what we're going to be talking about today. I've got uh, first we're going to talk a little bit about UBI, your universal basic income, and could it ever work? Is it socialism? I mean, it is, isn't it, right? And this really isn't from a call. This is from a comment on the blog that I think that uh, I just kind of felt like I should address this, and so we'll talk about that. I'm also going to talk about, or actually I have a caller that wants me to talk about, the implications of self-driving vehicles. Um from a from a standpoint of well, what, what about the fact that you know you won't be not only will there not be drunk driving accidents if we have most vehicles be uh, autonomous, uh, they won't be able to write tickets for it and they wouldn't be able to ruin people's lives for it and then extract money from people with it. Uh, it's actually more broad than that. I think DUI is the minimum thing there. Got a guy asking a question: Should you sell your house to become debt free? And I'll I'll let him explain the details of it and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. Uh, question on raising a quail in an aviary. Are there any concerns like worms and things like that? Um, and then a question, what is ICANN, and are we turning the Internet over to the United Nations? I'm sure Alex Jones is saying yes to that one right now and scaring the hell out of you with it. It's not how that works. It's not how that works at all. Um, then a question, how practical is a lever action 22? And a person asking questions about a book called Lights Out, not the one you guys probably are more familiar with, not David Crawford's book Lights Out, which was an original piece of work by somebody with uh, an independent thought process that developed something completely uh, organically and, and, and naturally himself, but a guy that basically parasited David's book's name I uh, couldn't come up with his own name for a book, uh, but he's a has-been retread mainstream media type, Ted Koppel. Ted Koppel. Yeah, I'll tell you why I, I'm not real concerned about uh, things from reading his book. I, I, I'm not, I won't say I have no concerns, but his book doesn't make me any more concerned. I'll put it to that way, and I think it shouldn't make you either. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. There's only one official Berkey guy, and you can only find him at his website, at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21, and a dot com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. 
everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1881, because the episode's 1881. I have two for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have The Scramble for Africa and Venezuela. I have The President Has Been Shot by a Lawyer. And in other news, Pillsbury opens the largest flour mill in the world. It has a capacity of 5,000 barrels a day, when 500 is considered a large operation. The mill won't always operate at full capacity, though. Uh, the Black Cat Cabaret opens in Paris. Cheap wine, bad decor, and a variety show makes the first cabaret. The owners and clientele are raising the middle finger to conventional society. And Kansas becomes the first dry state. The Methodists pushed for a law to prohibit the sale of alcohol. Hey, if your state was host to the Chisholm Trail and the Queen of Cowtown, uh, Dodge City, you'd probably prohibit drinking too. The law will be repealed in 1948. 1948. A uh, quick story. When I was, um, 21 years old, I guess. Yeah, I was 21 years old. A buddy of mine from the Army and I named Brad were driving through Kansas and we got in a wreck. Uh, because my friend decided to take a nap while driving. And uh, it wasn't a serious wreck. It was actually pretty minimal damage to his truck, but we did hit a guardrail, and that bent a tie rod, and therefore you couldn't steer, so the truck was out of commission. And this, of course, happened on Thanksgiving morning, about 3 a.m. It was about 30 below zero with the wind chill factor. Uh, the truck did run, so we had heat, but we took turns on this uh, piece of I-35, which is a major highway, but very little traffic on it at the time. Uh, car coming, get out and wave and try to get somebody to stop. Uh, state trooper finally uh, picked us up and uh, got us a tow truck and took us to a hotel and a place called uh, McPherson, Kansas. McPherson, Kansas. There's not a lot going on in McPherson, Kansas, especially on uh, Thanksgiving Day. So uh, we get a little bit of sleep. We get up around, you know, 11 o'clock or maybe 10 o'clock, I think it was, and we decided... Uh, We watched the Cowboys play and eat Thanksgiving dinner at the Happy Chef, which was like a rip-off of Bob's Big Boy across the street. And uh, But, you know, it'd be nice to have some beer for the uh, Cowboys game, especially given the circumstances. So we go to the front desk of the hotel. Now, we have no vehicle, and we can't get a rental car until Friday because everything's closed in this place. And he says, oh, beer, yeah, you're going to have to go to town because right here is a dry county. Okay. How far is town? Oh, it's about down the road that way, about six miles. Six miles. Challenge accepted. Um, when we got back, the beer was cold. I'll just put it that way. And uh, we made it in time to see the Cowboys game and watch the Cowboys screw it up in the ice and snow. Uh, that was the, the famous Leon Lett fumble. Uh, so there are still places in Kansas you can't buy a freaking beer. I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, the one I want to read for you guys is the Scramble for Africa and Venezuela. To this point, European presence in the African continent has been limited to a few islands, trading posts, larger areas, including French Algeria, the Congo, the British Cape Colony. But Sir Henry Stanley, who found Dr. Livingston, but probably did not say Dr. Livingston, I presume, has mapped the interior of Africa to give it a new name, the Dark Continent. Europeans have a better idea of the resources to be exploited, and they want to stake out their claim. The question is, why now? Well, the long depression has been really, really long. Tariff wars and protectionist policies between European countries have made trade goods very expensive. That made tariff-free Africa very attractive. 
<clears throat> and with diamonds and gold available for the taking, except for a few annoying African Zulus and Dutch Boers wandering around the races on. There's potential for a war between Europeans, so a couple of years they will agree to carve up Africa in a more friendly manner, friendly to Europeans, less friendly to actual Africans. Thus, the shape of modern African nations will be defined by the Europeans without regard to whether the borders make any sense to Africans who must live within them. The scramble, this is Alex, take, Alex Shrug's take, the scramble for Africa in the modern context refers to the exploitation of oil and other resources on the African continent. The controversy is usually framed as a battle between good and evil. The U.S. Gave, gives aid to Africa, but there are moral strings attached. For China, it's just business. I could explain this issue quickly using four-letter words, but I won't, so bear with me. Labor is cheap in some countries because it doesn't take much money to, for, for there to pay for food and have a nice place to sleep. This allows foreign companies to build infrastructure and pay the workers a lot less. Then social agitators tell the workers that their labor and natural resources are being stolen. Power to the people, but once the foreign devils are forced to leave, everything comes apart. The Venezuelan government nationalized the oil companies. The people were supposed to get rich, but the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. And toilet paper. <laughs> Union agreements specify a workplace restroom shall be fully stocked with toilet paper, but the workers are stealing it. The owner is facing a union strike, so he buys the black market toilet paper. Then the secret police confiscate it in the name of people, and everyone is just out of luck. Venezuela blames the USA for the crisis. Oh, and this has happened so many times throughout history. Um, colonialism, for all its you know bad things, um, is not always really colonialism. Uh, going to a place where it, it labor's cheap, setting up business, doing it somewhat ethically, and certainly paying people a fair wage is, is not really colonialism. It's, it's, it's globalism in a way, of course. Um, but what often happens is the people that come in and do this type of infrastructure build, you know, it's not like you, you learn how to do all this stuff in like kindergarten. It takes some sophistication. And when they leave, the people that have it don't know what to do with it, and it goes to hell. Um, I saw this in Panama. There's a railroad, Trans-Isthmus Railroad in Panama, that, uh, I mean, you wouldn't get on it when I was there. I mean, it was horrible. You're afraid you're going to get knifed. There's garbage laying on, on the floor of the train. And I'm like, this is awful. And a guy says to me, you know, he says, uh, you wouldn't believe what it looked like two years ago. I said, what it looked like two years ago? He said, it looked perfect. He said, the Americans managed it. Until two years ago, as part of the, uh, the, the, the Jimmy Peanut, uh, treaty, you know, giving the Panamanians back the canal zone, they got the railroad back before they got the whole canal back. And in two years, it went from being just this amazingly efficient tool to being something that's a death trap to ride. Um, and it, you know, we're going to hear in the future about Holodorma, which is a death through starvation in the Ukraine when Stalin nationalized the farms and took the farms away from the farmers and starved out the Ukrainians. But as many as died in the Ukraine, um, a lot of more people starved and died because when they took the farms over, they weren't able to produce food at a level necessary to, to make the farms viable for quite a while. It took them to figure out how to do it. It's, 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 it's the same old song. When you take stuff away from people that actually know how to use it, the problem is maybe you don't. Think about that as we get into kind of our first segment today. So I did a, a show on uh, yesterday with Bob Brown on automation, and we talked more about how automation will replace jobs. And the usual comments came in uh, more on Facebook than on the on the blog. But uh, 
you know, the, there'll just be new jobs, that type of thing. And then one guy said, well, no, nah, there's going to be that universal basic income thing, and uh, that'll set humanity free for creativity and, and what have you. And then the other person said, well, but the people that, you know, live above the UBI, that actually do something, that own all the automation, they won't be much better off because they'll be taxed heavily to fund the UBI. So here's what I'm going to say. Before I go into this, I want you to understand, I'm not saying they're going to do this. And I don't trust my government to do this. But just because the government will screw something up doesn't mean we shouldn't examine if it could be done. So could you do a universal basic income without taxing the piss out of everybody? You know, that, that was living, you know, at, at twice or more the level of whatever the UBI is. The answer is, of course you could. Now, to understand this, what you have to do is you have to realize, first of all, how ridiculous our existing economic system is. Because some of the things I'm going to tell you are going to be like, that can't work. That can't work. But when you understand that what we have works, then it actually seems a lot more practical than what we have. So the, the, the short version of how our current econo economic system works from a monetary standpoint, don't worry about socialism, communism, republicanism, you know, d democracy, whatever. Don't worry about anything. I'm talking about the money itself, right? Because you could have a hard money system in a communist state. You could have a fiat money system in a democratic state. It, 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 the money does not determine the form of government. And that's the important thing to understand here. So in our system, the way it basically works is we issue bonds and people buy the bonds and then we owe the money. Okay, And that is the, the basis of how money is created, which makes no sense because where'd the money come from that they bought it with? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there has to be a loan first and then you loan back. And then every piece of our economy that runs on credit generates more money. It creates it out of thin air. So when you buy a house for $150,000, let's say you mortgage it for $150,000, you bought it for $170,000, you put money down, whatever. You don't get $150,000 out of the bank. The bank actually creates $150,000 with a journal entry. Um, this is called a, a, a fractional reserve economic system. And it works from the federal level all the way through the private banking system this way. And money is created by doing that. And when our, when our federal reserve, who controls the money, because the government doesn't, wants more money to exist. They want to create, they want to print money. They don't actually print money. Only 3% of our money exists as paper bills right now and coin. What they do is they buy bonds off the market. So, you know, let's say a bank like uh, Bank of America, right, is sitting on uh, $20 billion of, uh, of bonds that are going to come to maturity in 10 years, and they're just collecting a little bit of interest. What the Fed does is it goes to the bank and it says, here's $20 billion in your interest, give us the bonds. And then... They hold the bonds. And that $20 billion that they give them is just like your house. It's created out of thin air. Now, I, I, I've done whole shows on this. If you, uh, if you want to go back way back in the time machine, uh, go to the site and search for Federal Reserve Shell Game. I explained the whole thing. Just understand how preposterous that is. So what would prevent us from transitioning our economic system to a blockchain-based currency like Bitcoin. Not Bitcoin, but like Bitcoin. The U.S. comes out with uh, AmeriCoin, right? U.S. coin, whatever you want to call it, and it's it's an electronic currency. 
and it's exchanged for the existing. And you can still use paper dollars that are in circulation until people get tired of using them. They just now are representing that instead of a, an IOU. Okay? And the government buys and pays for services with this currency that it creates as needed. But Jack, they'll just make trillions and zillions. And they already do this in the current system. But at least there's some check on it. No, there's not. There really isn't. The only check on it is, will somebody buy the debt? And when nobody will buy the debt, the Fed buys the debt with nothing. So there's, there's, Well, there's the debt ceiling, and they always vote to raise it. It's all a pantomime. It's all a game. Let that go. Because it could be set with computer algorithms to control the volume of currency so that it can't run away. It could actually have a cap that's, that's based on an algorithm that determines the size of the economy. Because this is the key, people. Money is bullshit. It's an illusion. It has no value. I don't care if it's gold. I don't care if it's silver. I don't care if it's Bitcoin. I don't care if it's dollars. I don't care what it is. It has no intrinsic value. It's effing useless. Unless there's something to exchange it for. Your work, your service, your products are what actually gives the money value. That's why when you go to a different country with different money, it spends differently. Because they've created a different way, a different ratio in which it works within their system. It's all an illusion anyway. Once you freed yourself of a debt-based money system, any shortfall in what would be necessary to pay the citizenry UBI could just be created within the boundaries of the economy itself. And as the money spent into the system, it just gets passed around. Understand, a dollar... If I have a dollar in my pocket and I go to a cheap bar where I can buy a beer for a dollar, I don't know what that exists anymore. Look, look, do another. I buy the beer and I give the dollar as a tip to the bartender. He throws it in his pocket on the way home. He spends that dollar with other dollars and buys gasoline. That Then the, the guy that owns the gas station uh, writes a check for his electrical service and that dollar is one of the dollars that goes in there. And somebody that works at the electric service basically gets that same dollar. See, the money just keeps moving around. The one dollar goes through thousands and thousands of transactions. And, and once you understand that, you realize that we can create money out of thin air because that's all they're doing anyway. And it could be created for the intent of making sure every person could have their basic needs met. I'm not saying we should do this. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I'm saying we could do this. And people would say, isn't that socialism? Isn't that like the train story from uh, Panama or what happened in Venezuela? No, it's not. No, it's not. Because the money is then set free to work in the economy, however it is. When you get your $2,500 a month, whatever it is, space credits, then you look around and say, well, this is what I'm going to do with my $2,500. This is where I'm going to live. This is how I'm going to manage my life. This is the product that I'm going to spend it on or not spend it on. This is the service I'm going to purchase or not. And everybody's free to use their money. Now, what people would say is, well, won't this just create massive inflation? Not really. Not really. Not really. Because the way that you would do this is it would be phased in and people would still be spending about the same amount of money. They just might not be working for it as they're replaced with technology. Or let me put it another way for you. There's a shitload of people out there who their jobs are not important. We could get rid of them tomorrow and nothing would really happen. 
There's, there's a lot of people with jobs that are not necessary. Now, an example would be how many people are driving trains in New Jersey right now? And if computers were driving those trains, we wouldn't have had the accident we did today. Okay, so, so that, that person that no longer is working or no longer is working as much, their income's going to adjust back to about what it always was. Now, some of the lowest, poorest people would have more, but maybe not if you eliminate all other welfare services. See, that's the key with UBI. Oh, you know those food stamps? You don't get those anymore. No, 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 no. Oh, that, that, that Section 8 housing? No, 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 no. So you don't get none of that shit. What is the actual cost of one person on welfare? It's way over $2,500 in real cost. So it could work. Do I for a minute believe my government has the capacity to pull it off and do it the right way? No. But I do wonder, with the concept of virtual nations, if it could happen that way. What if people just stop using U.S. dollars, Canadian dollars, Mexican pesos, and start using Bitcoin-like uh, currencies, and some system is developed that actually allows people to receive a certain amount of it for doing something. And what exactly? I don't know. But not going to a job they hate every day. And you might say that's just fanciful. Sure. And a lot of things we do today, people would have said 100 years ago, could never be done. Again, I'm not saying we'll do it. I'm not saying we should do it. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm saying it could be done. And the, the real challenge for us is to look at all the things that can be done because this problem's not going away. It's not going away. No, there won't just be new jobs. I'm getting news articles from you guys every day in every sector. Yes, this, this technology will create 2 million jobs. Uh, yeah, new, 2 million new jobs. It's great. It's going to take away 7 million. By the way, most of the 5 million, the net loss there is going to be white collar, middle management like level work. And it's just, Millions upon millions upon millions, and there's a breaking point. And we got to do something. I don't know what it is, but we better be open to all options. Because when you're not open to all options, usually you get one hoisted on you at the very end, and they say, well, now we have to do it. And usually that's bad, and usually that's when everything falls apart. For the first call, I got one more thing I want to talk about. Um, I missed it in the feedback show this, this week. I, I had it in the bullet point list, and I forgot to talk about it. So I had a guy that called in a week or so ago that wanted to know about growing a grapevine over a dog kennel. And I gave him some advice on how you would do that, you know, and protect the grapes from getting over-fertilized or damaged by the salt in the urine and what have you. And I got a whole bunch of feedback. Grapes kill dogs. Grapes kill dogs. This is new to me. I I mean, we grew, where I grew up, we had, you know, muscadines all over the property, dogs running around all over the place. Almost every other house on the street that I grew up in in Pennsylvania had grapevines, and I never saw a dog sick over it or anything. So I, I, I look into this, and yeah, it's, it's true that if a dog eats a, you know, a significant number of grapes, it can cause renal failure, which is kidney failure, and, and many other things, and kill them. It's toxic. I'm doing some more research into this because it doesn't seem to make sense to me. And it turns out that no one knows what about the grapes harms the dog, and it's that some dogs are harmed and some dogs aren't. Okay. It could be that an allergic anaphylactic type reaction in dogs is, 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 is a very common dog trait, but that doesn't seem like it either. When I, when I dug into this as deep as I could, my personal belief is there is something 
in the agricultural system, some chemical, whether it be a fertilizer that, that's taken up in the grape or something they're spraying that's highly toxic to dogs. And it's probably in other things that we're eating too, but grapes are probably one of the few things since they're sweet that some dogs will eat that you wouldn't normally think of as a dog eating. Um, I've never seen a dog really excited about grapes. Uh, we did have a husky that, that occasionally ate a grape or two, and he seemed fine from it. I wouldn't feed... Uh, them to them now with what I know. So when you think about doing something like sheltering a dog with shade, you may want to choose something other than a grape, maybe hardy kiwi or something like that. But I don't know that the, the grapes in of themselves are toxic. And if you do the research, you'll see that I'm not alone in that. And it's it, the people that have actually considered beyond the fact, oh, the dog ate grapes and the dog got sick, tend to kind of say the same thing because this was something that, like, Oh, I don't know, in the 50s and 60s, no one ever said, no, I fed my dog grapes and he died, right? Like, vets weren't seeing that. This is a recent phenomenon. So I think if you're growing, you know, grapes in, what, in, your, in your backyard, I, I think they provide, present a pretty low risk to your dog. But I'm not sure about that, and I, I wouldn't risk my dog's health with it. My concern would be doing it over the dog run now. If the dog spends a lot of time in the grapes there, you'd have a lot of them there. He's more likely to eat them. Um, Though, again, I, I don't know. I've not really ever seen a dog that's like, you know, gee, a grape. It's like a Scooby snack. I've, I've not seen that. So uh, I do appreciate all of you guys pointing that out to me so I knew to raise the alarm on it and say, hey, this is something you guys might want to know about. By the way, I'll tell you another thing. You don't want to feed the dogs, and it's it's not going to kill them quick usually or cause uh, immediate consequences, but it long-term is very bad for their health. It's a low-grade uh, toxicity is alliums which is like garlic and onion. Garlic and onion are a no-go for your bow wows, guys. That's, 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 a, that's a fact. And, uh, again, this is like, um, it'd be like you eating a little bit of poison every day. So if, if you happen to give a dog some chicken and the chicken had some garlic on it, that's, that's not a problem. The problem is there's actually recipes out there for people to make their own dog treats and stuff that just say use garlic powder or onion powder. And that's, that's not good for your doggies. All right, so with all of that, let's go ahead and take a first call today. Hey Jack, this is Victor in Columbus. Just listening to you talk about uh, automated vehicles and the future of you know losing truck drivers and everybody, uh, and the benefits of you know no no more DUIs. That's also uh, something that's going to affect the economy as far as now the cops won't be able to. They won't have the opportunity for that revenue or theft. Um, just thought you might like to, to talk about that for a second. Thanks again. Uh, the, the first thing I want to kind of do is I, I do want to dispel a myth. Because there's a myth that when your your local county manager or whatever writes you a ticket, that, that his department or you know your, your, your local city, your little town where they're running speed traps like they do in this little town called Lakeside down here, and it's definitely a speed trap hellhole, um, you get the, the feeling that it, when Lakeside, a Lakeside officer writes a guy a ticket for, let's say, $100, bucks, that, well, Lakeside gets $100. It doesn't work that way at all. The, 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 the overriding state... And, and what have you takes pieces. So I just wanted to clear that up because I, I know you can get to feel like cops are road pirates and sometimes I, I am, I'm guilty of feeling the same way. But let me just give you an example. This is in, uh, um, 
Henderson Henderson County. Um, I don't even know what state it is. I just Minneapolis, oh, Minneapolis Minnesota. Um, so here's a breakdown of what happens when somebody pays a hundred and forty five dollar fine. So um, on a hundred forty five dollar fine, seventy five is a surcharge that goes to the state fund. And legislators would use that money for things like education, domestic violence advocacy, conservation products. There's a list almost as long as your forearm of the things that are funded out of that surcharge. There's a $3 fee that goes to the county law libraries. After that, the rest of the money in uh, Hennepin County is split. 80% goes to the cities and 20% goes to the state's general fund. Um, so that means that in the end, uh, you know, maybe out of a $145 fine, the the city of the, of the where that officer works that wrote you that ticket is going to get maybe $25, $30. Bucks. And, and I think that uh, my brother-in-law told me in Grand Prairie, when you write a speeding ticket, it comes out to about $25. Bucks. So it's probably pretty similar everywhere. It doesn't change the whole state apparatus. doesn't change the fact that they're taking money from people and that they're using it as a profit center. But it's certainly the case that a city is not able to fund the cost of an officer off the tickets he writes. They can only offset a portion of his cost. And we can criticize that, but we should criticize it accurately. So for all you cops out there that think I'm hard on you, every once in a while I'll, you know, I'll correct some information like that that people uh, have misunderstood. Okay. So, But here's what I actually think. Um, the, the, the police department makes no real financial gains whatsoever when a, a person is done up on a DUI. That money almost exclusively goes to the court system in the state. And then, of course, if that person does jail time, there's a cost of jailing the person, you know. And there's a cost to the community of that person not being able to work or drive or whatever. And while I think getting in your car when you're actually drunk and uh, endangering lives is a, is a really bad thing to do, I also think the enforcement of, of DUI is often a little eccentric, Right, you know, if, if when 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 they dropped the blood alcohol level to .08, they really made it to the point where people that have been driving just fine their adult lives could become felons overnight, hit with a with a DUI. Um, and, and I'm not a fan of that. So, to me, this whole autonomous vehicle thing solves that problem. You can't arrest me for a DUI. I'm not operating the vehicle. The computer is. I'm in the back seat sleeping, waiting to get home. It'll wake me up when I get there, that type of thing. Um, it'll be interesting, though, how long it takes for that to be the truth. Here's why. Right now, let's say you're in your parking lot, uh, in a parking lot outside of a bar, and you've decided that you shouldn't drive home, that you're drunk. So what you do is you turn the car on and turn the air conditioner on so you're nice and cool, And you sit in the in the, in the the car. In fact, you decide, you know what? I'm going to make it very clear. I'm not driving. You lock the car up and you get in the back seat. You stretch out and you sleep it off. An officer can write you a DUI. You're in possession of the the keys. You had the ability to move the vehicle and you were inside the vehicle. Now, some places it's harder to get a conviction on that. Some places it's pretty easy. So you're in the vehicle. It's driving itself. Well, you're the final checkpoint on the vehicle, right? So. That could go on. But eventually, yeah, you got to get to a point when these vehicles are completely autonomous. Like, you, you, Here's where the bigger issue, though, is. There is a lot of money that goes into state governments and gets then redistributed back out of cities and counties from traffic tickets, of, you know, from, from little things to big things. What happens when all that money goes away? 
I mean, have you ever really thought about that? I mean, there's there's so many things the government says it doesn't want to happen, and they really are just concerned about safety, but it's it's profit-taking is what it is. How about this one? You know those really expensive red light cameras? You know, like the, the city of Arlington, Texas here, spent $9.5 million dollars to put in in just a few intersections, just a few places, not everywhere. Just the ones that were really, really dangerous. Actually, they were the ones where you were likely to get to write a lot of tickets because people kind of sneak through it right on red without stopping as the light changed as they got there. And there's, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff like that, right? Like my wife did and then blame me for it because she sent us a picture of the truck. This is a good story, guys. So my wife says uh, to me one day, she goes, do you remember a couple weeks ago when we went over to Dad's? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. You remember how you were driving when you came home? Yeah, I guess so. She goes, you got a ticket. I'm like, I didn't get a ticket. I remember that. She goes, no, you got it from the red light camera. I'm like, no. She's, yeah, so I go online, and they have a picture of my license plate as big as the screen. It's including my license plate. And they have a video. They have a, a, a video system. The video is a little clip of where I got my ticket. And I see the truck come. And it gets, it does exactly that. It gets to, the red, the light turns red. It's a ride on red. And I just kind of like Chicago or what do you call it? A Hollywood stop through it. You know, don't really stop, kind of roll through it slow. No real danger or anything, but I don't do that. And I'm sitting there going, well, there I go. And, and my wife and my son are watching me and laughing at me. I'm like, I, I, I can't, I was going to go, I was going to go fight this. I'm like, I can't. I mean, it, and I, I, then all of a sudden I'm like, I, I, I stop the video. And I look at the truck, and you can see through the back window, you can see heads. My wife's a bit shorter than I am. And you can see that the person driving is short enough that their head doesn't come up above the bucket seat. And the person in the passenger seat's head is sticking up above. She was driving, and she tried to blame me, right? So it was her that ran the red light, and it was there on camera. Here's my point, though. That was a very expensive system. But the re way they justified it is we'll make lots of money on it. It'll improve public safety and we'll get lots of money. Yeah. So one cop, actually a couple cops because they have shifts, right? But there's a, one cop at a time sits in a little room with video cameras every, with, with uh, video screens everywhere. He sits there and it comes up, boop, got one. He hits the review button. He looks at it. He makes the determination whether to issue the ticket or not. He actually looks at it as a trained law enforcement officer says, yes, that's an infraction. No, that's a false positive. That's how they make it legitimate. That whole system, including that officer, his op center, is being paid for by fines. Well, how's that going to work? Like, how much infrastructure has been built with that type of thinking that's not paid for yet? Because, you know, the state doesn't do anything. The cities don't do anything with money they have today. That's craziness. They do it with borrowed money they're going to pay back tomorrow. And then he used the fines to kind of offset that, right? Well, there's a real issue there alone as automation begins to minimize human error that today results in fines, and those fines aren't there. And then how many officers do we need if they're not out writing tickets all the time? Interesting, isn't it? So now we need less police officers. Well, there's plenty of crime. Well, there's plenty of crime, but there's no way we need as many officers out on patrol if there's no real need for traffic enforcement anymore. 
or it's significantly reduced. Just some stuff to think about, guys. This this whole thing, like I said, it's not going away, and it's far deeper than people realize. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, would you sell a home to cash out and pay off all consumer debt, or would you keep your home, continue to service your debts, but at the same time not be able to save money or have much of a social life? I know you'll answer this so it applies to as many listeners as possible, which is fantastic, but here are the details anyway. I owe 115 on my house that is in a market where comparable houses sell for over 150. I have 35k in consumer debt. I'm 32 and aside from homes, I've never really had debt, that is until last year when I signed my name to a good used truck and shortly thereafter my family experienced a disaster, divorce, which cost a lot of money. I can service the debt, but in doing so, I cannot save money, which we all know is dangerous. I have two other options. One, I could rent it out, which my realtor estimates me getting 400 a month more than my mortgage payment. This would develop a passive income, so I'm considering this, but I wouldn't have cash reserves if anything went wrong for the tenant. Option two, I could get a roommate and use that income to save money and pay off debts sooner. However, I have two boys and not sure I want a roommate but may consider one if they came from your audience and were already a part of my local community here. The house is a 322 with an office sitting on one and a quarter acres near Lake Houston and within walking distance from a few good fishing spots. The neighbors are great. Some of us garden, some of us raise chickens. Many of us talk to each other. Several of us hunt. We have firearms. We know how to work with our hands. Children ride golf carts in full-size ATVs unsupervised throughout the neighborhood in a respectful manner, manner, and no one calls CPS. There's one caveat to the situation. My house needs 5K worth of work. It's not a fixer-upper, but it needs to be refreshed and have minor repairs done before I can extract its full value. What are your thoughts? Okay, well, it, it sounds like a great place to live. And it sounds like you don't really have a problem affording the house. Your problem is affording the house plus the debt. And the debt payment's probably significant, so I'm going to give you an option you didn't suggest that might be very attractive in this instance. Assuming the house will appraise at what you say it will or higher, and it may appraise higher, especially if you do figure out how to do just a few little things to make it look a little bit better, as though you were going to sell it. And you may not need to do those to get it to appraise higher. Appraisals are pretty lenient still on, on, on things like that. You know, It's not so much marketability, but what's the overriding value of the house? You may be able to refinance the house with a cash-out option. I know it's more debt, and it's long-term debt versus short-term debt, but hear me out here. The the cost of $35,000 across a 30-year mortgage comes out to a monthly payment right now of about $150. And, and, and I just bet that you making all your payments on this is far more than that. It's, it's better, though, because that $150 for the first four or five years will be mostly part of mortgage interest. And that means you're going to turn around and deduct it from your income tax. And right now, you can get a mortgage for about 3%, assuming you have decent credit. So it might be the best option. Here's why. You get to stay where you are. You're not going to go upside down in the house. Your payment's not going to go up that much. You can wipe out the debt, and you don't have to do it all either. You could wipe out 
eighty percent of it. You should you should you should at least get numbers on this and run the math. Because at a three percent interest rate, right now mortgages are a value. Mortgages are a value. And you already have one. Right? It's not like It's not like you're, you, you have a, a, a paid-for, free-and-clear house and you're going and taking a mortgage on it. You're just increasing the amount that's financed against it. And if you're able to do that, that might be the best option. And I know that seems like something Jack Spirico wouldn't say because it's debt, and debt is evil, debt is cancer. No, consumer debt's cancer. Debt on a house is okay because I would look at it this way. You have to look at things separated from them to be able to make this determination. Let's say right now you had no debt. You found this wonderful house, it sounds like you have in this wonderful neighborhood where your kids get to be kids, and they're going to have a great place to grow up. And the house was selling for $150. And you could get it with a conventional or a, uh, what do you call it, like an FHA mortgage, right? And F your, your regular you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type mortgage with 3% down and all, and you were going to finance it for about $150. By the time it was all said and done with, you pay your closing costs, your 3%. And you could afford it, would you buy it? And when you say, well, yeah, I yes, you know, if I, if, if, if right now you had no debt, you could buy your house, and the only thing that would change is your payment would be $150 more a month on it, would you still buy the house? And if you say yes, there is no difference. You think there's a difference because it feels different, but in the end, it, it all works the same way. It works the other way, too. When I got close to that, that same truck, it's the one I got, got in a bad wreck with about a year ago. Um, some idiot came into our lane and hit us head on um, and, and took it out. But that truck was free and clear for about 10 years. And the way that truck got free and clear was one day my wife said to me, she said, we only owe $3,500 on a truck. I'm like, hold on a second. I looked up how much money we had in the bank. I said, write him a check for $3,500 and send it and pay it off. And she said to me, but, uh, you know, maybe we should, hold on. Let's say that we owed, we, we had no money on a truck right now. And somebody sent us a letter that said they'd loan us 3500 bucks against it in return for however many payments we have left. Would you, would you take the loan? And she looked at me. She looked at the checkbook. She looked at me. She said, son of a bitch. You're always right. And she wrote the check. Then we were free and clear. So in that case, it was eliminating debt. But it's still no different. You have to look at it from all levels. So your other options, selling it. See, here's my problem with that. Okay, you're going to sell your house. What are you going to get? $150, okay. So by the time it's all said and done with, you're not going to have $35,000 if you owe $115 on it. By the time you pay your real estate agent and all that other stuff, and you say it needs five grand, so maybe you're going to come out of it with $20,000 in your pocket. Where are you going to live? I'm going to go get a, you know, rent. So you're going to change your, your living arrangements. What can you rent in Houston for under a thousand bucks a month for two boys and yourself? Probably not much. Or you're going to really downgrade your life. One or the other, right? Okay. And you talk about having no, no, no social life or whatever, but it sounds like you can walk and go fishing. You have a good neighborhood. Like you have a very low cost social life. Now, if you, if you move, you may put yourself into, a, you have a high cost of social life. So I would do a complete budget analysis on this and I would do what most Americans never do. I would treat your decision making like you're the CEO of a company and your company is your household inc. And I would think about it monetarily and, and, and I'm, I'm leaning toward that probably being the best option. Probably being the best option. So, uh, I'm sorry to hear about a divorce, but 
you'll recover. And so then the other side of the equation when you operate a business is how do I increase cash flow? What can you do to increase cash flow? That's another thing to look at there. Um, and I, I don't know what that is, but in a neighborhood like yours, there just might be some service that you could be performing, or maybe there's some service those young entrepreneurial boys could be performing soon that would give them an income and reduce your need to provide money to them. That's another way to look at it. But I'm leaning toward that um, the concept of a cash-out refinancement on, on this one, the way those numbers work out. Because you can probably get close to enough money to pay it off, and if you sell it, you're not going to. When, you, when that's all said and done with, you might you might have 20. And I would say this, like if your option would be, okay, I get 20, I can pay off, well, then you got to move. When it's all said and done, say you still you, you come out 20. If you refinance for 20, Right, you, you, we look at it that way. If you refinance for twenty and you kick down your debt to only fifteen grand to pay off your debt, um, twenty thousand dollars amortized over thirty years is about eighty-four bucks. So that might be another way to look at it. You take twenty thousand out in a cash cash out refi at a house. Okay, you take advantage of these incredibly stupid low interest rates right now. Okay, um, and then you're down to a $15,000 pocket of debt and if you can if you can scrape up 500 bucks a month to pay on that and still have a little money to put away for your own shit fund and whatever then you're only what uh, you're you're 30 30 months from having that debt gone and you've only increased your see and I still think like every way I work that out I think you're better off doing that capitalize on the cuz you're you're going to you're doing the same thing you're taking the equity out of the house one way you take the equity out of the house, you're homeless, and you got to figure out how to live, and you could end up having to spend more money than you expect to do that. The other way, you're fixed knowns, and, and you're still just taking the equity out, but you keep the house. Those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Mark from Moore, Oklahoma. I've got a two-part question for you here today. I'm getting ready to start raising my quail, and... I'm trying to determine if I need bedding for an aviary-type system or if I can just let them run on the ground. If I let them run on the ground, one thing I haven't heard mentioned is do I need to deworm my quail if I'm going to be eating the meat and the eggs? Uh, great job on the show. I appreciate it, Jack. Bye. Okay, so quail are a lot like little chickens, Okay. They're a lot of little chickens, and that means they like to scratch stuff and, and, and take dust baths and things like that. They're not quite as scratchy as a chicken, but they do a lot of kind of digging and scratching and, and playing around. So, yeah, I, you, I would definitely say you want some bedding because otherwise you have bare dirt, and when, when you have bare dirt for long enough, what you get is compaction. And the easiest thing is just wood chips, and you probably have some facility around you somewhere you can buy wood chips by the truckload. And if you're not building a giant aviary like me, you know a truckload may coat the floor for you two, three, four, or more times, right? So just a couple inches of wood chips in there, and then keep adding wood chips. And about once a year, go in there with a rake and rake that stuff all out, just kind of scrape it, shovel it all out of there. You've got incredibly, you know, maybe pile it up for a couple months and let it sit. Wonderful compost because some of it's fresh, some of it's old, whatever. Give it, give it a month or two to sit. Maybe turn it once or twice. Maybe mix it in with some other things and just put a big thick bedding back down and use like a deep bedding. That's what we do. Uh, we, you know, we we just add wood chips and add wood chips and add wood chips to the point where like, okay, now we need to take some out and uh, that works pretty good. And they'll process those and that'll help you know absorb droppings and 
what will actually end up happening is because of the way that all works, it will attract microorganisms and soil uh, organisms and insects and things like that, which your quail will eat. So it's kind of a, a, a good thing overall. As far as worms, I think the easiest thing to do, and this is what we do, is you put a couple shallow pans in your aviary with sand, plain old, you know, play lot sand, and mix in about 10% diametaceous earth. You want to use food-grade diametaceous earth, and we've talked about that before, so I won't go into it, but it's not like food grade is just for humans. Like the diametaceous earth that, um, that goes in like a pool filter or something like that is not good for ingestion for any creature whatsoever. What that's going to do is it's going to have a great effect on the parasites. They're going to eat a lot of it. Um, the feed that I actually feed my quail from Texas Naturals has DE in it as well. Um, so it's a good thing for them to eat. That's, it's very, very much an antiparasitic. And, and then you pretty much don't have much to worry about there. Um, what you don't want is compacted, exposed dirt long-term because there's all types of sanitation issues with that. So think of it like a chicken coop using the deep litter method, and, and your quail will be happy. Um, I have to say that I don't have a problem raising quails in cages. I think it's a great way to go for some people. And an aviary is what? It's a big cage. But if you can do something like that, They just seem like people say like that they're you know they're bred to be in cages and all and they are and they have been for thousands of years, um, but when you put them in a, an aviary they act like birds, they're, they're pretty happy and they're pretty calm too. We'll walk around in there with them and you know unless you're trying to grab one they just kind of run. You got to make sure you don't step on them what have you. It's uh it's pretty keen. Uh, I'll tell you something else I've been doing. I, I've been wondering what are the limits of my ability to train Charlie to not mess with livestock. Because a quail, man, that's he's bird dog pit bull, right? So I had him in there a couple times now this week since it's bigger and I can watch him better. And he gets a little hurt, and I was like, don't you do it. And he looks at me like, come on, Dad, please, I want to do it. And uh, I, I was in there with him for about 10 minutes, and he was doing really good. I was He was following me around. I was checking out some of the, the stuff, the work I had done and all. And uh, all of a sudden, I don't see him, and he's standing at the, the door waiting to leave. I go over. He's got a quail in his mouth. He didn't hurt it. He just like like had a good bird dog grip on it, like when they do a retrieve. I'm like, put that down. He spits it out. He looks at me like, no, buddy, that's not going to work. So we'll keep working on him with that. But uh, it's uh, it's it's very gratifying to see the animals you're caring for uh, live, you know, as close to to the way they should as possible. So anyway, I uh, wish you well with your aviary. Let's. Uh, oh, one big thing, man. Make sure you guys that are doing aviaries. You figure out some solution with lighting. Because if you are relying on Mother Nature, you're going to get a whole lot of your year where you're not going to get eggs. Because quail want 14 hours of light. So you want to use some good quality lighting on timers. Make sure you get a full 14 hours of light. That'll keep them laying. And I will say, the, the, the trade-off is walking around picking up little eggs uh, that blend into stuff in the bedding and all. And you get some dirty ones and stuff like that. Where when you have them in a rack system, you get very clean perfect eggs every time so it's it's not without its trade-offs but i personally after doing it both ways think it's worth it let's take another one hey jack this is troy in central va hey man i wanted to ask you a question about uh this ican network being handed over to the united nations um uh, i don't know a whole lot about it but uh i've been hearing a lot of hubbub about it on the internet so i just wanted to hear your take on it appreciate it man thanks for all you do Okay, um, 
let's 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 look at this. It, it's not like this shows an incredible competency in the Obama administration, but what does? So it's not being handed over to the United Nations. That's not happening. 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 In fact, it will be up to ICANN what happens. Up until now, the organization known as ICANN, which is the uh, Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, is a nonprofit organization that's responsible for coordinating the maintenance and procedures of several databases related to the namespaces, right? So what that means is, like, it, they basically are in charge of the domain registration. So when you buy your website name.com, even though you're buying it through GoDaddy or through, you know, hosting with us or whatever, you're, you're, and you're paying them, ICANN on the back side is the one that handles the registry. Okay, so they're not the Internet, Right, they are the they are the yellow pages of the internet in a way, so to speak. They 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 handle the the operator level, like what who owns this domain name, and that's really what they do. They don't do much more. Now, what's actually gone on is so they had a monopoly, they had a monopoly on on that. Nobody else can do that. Only one person can do that. And I don't like monopolies, but I'll, I'll tell you for something like this, um, it kind of makes sense to have one authority because they don't do anything with their authority. All they do is exist for the purpose of making sure that when you type in the survivalpodcast.com, you end up on my website, not on a page that says site not found or somebody else's website. That, that's basically it. And that's really handled. At the, the internet server level, I'm the one that controls that. I could make you type that domain in and go anywhere I want, right? <laughs> in fact, just to kind of prove that point, pause the recording for a moment, pull up your phone, and go to the following websites. I'm a statistasshole.net and I'm a statistasshole.org and see where you end up. And I'll tell you, I own those domain names. See, I control where they point to. What ICANN does is determine who owns it. It determines the ownership of the name. Okay? Now, with a monopoly, you know, you get antitrust lawsuits. So, so a few years ago, some entrepreneurs got together and said, well, why can't we have a piece of this business? And, of course, what ICANN says is anybody who wants to can register with us and sell domain names. We're a nonprofit that exists to basically run the back end. So it doesn't get confused. So there's one central place where this happens. Well, they tried to sue them under antitrust. So if I had a business you couldn't enter, that's a monopoly. But because they were contracted with the Commerce Department of the United States and considered, therefore, an extension of a government entity, they were protected from being sued for antitrust. So when that contract runs out, which it's about to the end of this month, and it's been known a long time it's going to happen, nothing happens. It's not like... Here, UN, take over ICANN. What, 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 what people that are afraid are saying is, well, then that leaves ICANN subject to possibly being sued again for antitrust. Okay? And then they may, they may run to the United Nations and contract with them to protect their monopoly because the United States isn't doing it for them anymore. Uh, they could just as easily contract with Canada or the United Kingdom or whatever. And then my question would be, do you really trust The U.S. Commerce Department, right? Any more than you trust any other government? I personally don't. 
And the reason we had this monopoly, or ICANN has this monopoly, and it was connected to the United States, is the Internet really started here, and the companies that built it were here, and we were the ones that had to do it. So do I think this is a good thing? No. Should you should you be listening to Alex Jones? I can hear him now. They're doing it. This is their end game plan. They're going to turn the internet over to the, the United Nations, and, and, and they're going to silence everybody like me. No, no, dude, that's 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 not what this is. That's not what this is. The actual concerns are if you become subject to international pressure versus just national pressure, that it may make it more likely that certain people would dispute domain names based on trademark infringements or things like that. In the end, ICANN is not a government agency. It never has been. It's been protected by our gangsters. And what they're saying is if our gangsters don't protect it anymore, it may seek out the protection of other gangsters. That's what's actually going on. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Jesse of Iowa again. Thank you so much for answering my questions on the Mulberries a couple weeks ago. I'm really excited to try some um, some of the, those ideas for next spring. I'm, I'm pumped, man. Hey, um, I got a gun question for you. I'm not, and it's not like a survival, um, guy, you know, line. It mostly just in general. What do you think of Lover Action 22s? I got my eye on a Henry Evil Roy uh, model, and uh, really, what's your opinion on it? Are there any um, really big pluses of Lever Actions compared to a semi-auto? I got a nice little Ruger 1022. I'm happy with it, but I thought about upgrading to an uh, auto. I mean, not an auto. I'm sorry, a, a lever action. And also, um, practicality wise, I'm also looking into investing into an AR15 223. And to me, that seems more practical for home defense. And even if I want to go like you know varmint hunting, like for coyotes, uh, my wife has an AR15 or I should say AR22. And uh, just wonder what you think is more practical for home defense. And me personally, I think the AR-15-223 would be the best way. But I just want your opinion. There's another model I should keep my eyes on. Thanks so much for your time, Jack. Really appreciate the show, and take care. So we're kind of blurring questions in, in this one to look like one question that's actually multiple. So let's let's start out with the basic question of what do I think of Lever Action 22s? I think they're cool. I think they're fun as hell. And if you want one, and you have the money, and it doesn't take away your ability to do other things in your life that are important, then you should have one. Just like you were deciding to buy a new couch. Because that's how I see a Lever Action 22. It's not like something you need. The old couch works. You just want one that feels better. So if you have a, a semi-auto 22, it's in every measurable way, from a technical standpoint, superior to a Lever Action. You just want one. Fine. You can have one. Done. The lever action as a home defense or a defensive tool is flawed compared to almost every other long gun, which is why you don't see any military using them. The, the only military I know that used lever action was the United States military, and when we got our asses tore up going up San Juan Hill with Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, we switched to bolt actions because you could fire them better from a prone position even though there was a slower rate of fire. so And then with the advent of semi-autos, you know, how many bolt guns do you see in military service now other than for snipers? And even in many cases, snipers are firing semi-autos at this point. So it's, 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 it's not the best tool for home defense. Now, 22 long rifle for home defense. 
Let me reiterate what I say all the time when I talk about a, a gun as a defensive tool. I don't want to get shot with any of them. I don't want to get shot with a friggin' pellet gun. You, you can get seriously injured or even killed shot in the right spot with a pellet gun. All you got to do is clip an artery. Pen, if it penetrates flesh and bone, it could do that. So, 22s kill more people than any other gun in America. The media never tells you that because they don't sound scary, but that's the truth. They're, they are the, the go-to handgun of criminals. They're quiet. They're cheap. They're easy to conceal. They're easy to hide. And when you get caught with one, it's just a 22. Even if you're done up on it, it's, it's not like having an AK. Okay? So it's effective, but it's not ideal. Um, the, if you compare the stop rate, so one shot stop rate of the 223 to the 22 long rifle, it, it ain't even close. It, it isn't even close. So if I were going to want a home defensive rifle, I would look very, very hard at something like the 223. Um, I would also look at like uh, the old Ruger Deerfield carbine in uh, 44 Magnum because that'll stop your ass good right there. <laughs> It will. Um, and small, handy, lightweight, easy to handle. The only problem is they're hard to come by anymore because they don't make them anymore. Um, and you got a capacity issue, but when, you know, how many 44 Magnum holes does somebody need in them to stop doing whatever you want them to stop doing? The AR platform is the best platform out there for the average person for home defense, for tactical use, you name it. That's why they want to get rid of it. It's a gun that a nine year old girl can shoot well if you teach her how to do it, which means a grown man should be able to shoot it just fine in fact, in spite of the fact that the, Whatever that guy's name was, that people thought it was from the Onion because his name was something really stupid. What, what was that guy's name? I, I can't remember. Oh yeah, his last name was Kuntzman, K-U-N-T-Z-M-A-N, Kuntzman. It, it, it sounded like something from the Onion. It's like it was very loud. It was traumatic. I got PTSD that lasted for hours or whatever. Um, no, that's not how ARs work. That's not how ARs work at all. The recoil bruised the shoulder. They have no recoil. When I was in the army, and we did our basic rifle training. And one of the things that drill sergeants have to do is get recruits to not be afraid of the gun. Because uh, you're not like, it's not like you get everybody that you get is like me. They, they grew up hunting and fishing and shooting and, and, and had no fear of the gun, just respect for it. So you, because if you want safe, you also have to have respect. Uh, and you also have to get rid of irrational fear. So one of the ways they did that is the, the drill sergeant, I remember, stood up and put the stock of the M16A1 to his forehead and fired it downrange a couple times with the forehead resting on his, on his forehead, or the, the stock resting on his forehead, and then he put it on his balls. He put it on his balls and fired it like five shots with it, with it up against his balls and said, okay, you don't have to be afraid of your shoulder. So it, it, it's just a fantastic platform for all those reasons and more, and it is highly lethal. It, it is a highly lethal round. Um, you can get into the battlefield thing and, you know, the stopping power versus the 308 or whatever. I, yeah, whatever. Okay. We're talking about a home invasion scenario. So it's a better tool. So you have to decide which do you want more and why. My personal feeling is that the best home defense tool is a good quality handgun. 45, 9mm, 40 Smith Wesson, you take your pick, 357 Magnum, because it, it moves and is usable more effectively in home defense situations. Your average home defense situation often involves somebody at the door, you don't know who they are. It's concealable. 
You know, so when you when you find out it's actually some guy from the post office that's working uh, part time or something, not in a uniform, you're not there standing there with an AR in his face. Okay, so home defense, I like to rely first on the handgun. And if you if you read Fernando Aguirre's book, um, who I can't remember the name of that book, but it's a great book about collapse in Argentina. He uses the same conclusion: home defense, handgun is your kind of your first tool. Um, again, Lever Action 22, very cool, very fun, nice quick follow-up shots, um, but you have a 22 that's better than, than it will ever be. It's something you're buying because you want it, because you like the novelty of it, and it's fun. You know, I, I don't have a Lever Action 22, but I have uh, two Lever Action guns, and I enjoy them. One's a 44 Magnum. I shoot deer with it. Um, I have guns that are better suited for that, but I like hunting with it. I like that it's short. I like that it handles well. I like that it has quick follow-up on running game. I like that it makes a big hole. I like it. That's why I have it. That's the only reason you should buy a .22 uh, lever action gun. You cannot justify it for anything other than you like it. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. My question is, a cyber attack, do you believe it's a credible threat? And... What would you do to prepare? I just recently read a book called Lights Out, A Cyber Attack, A Nation Unprepared, and the Aftermath. And when reading the book, you know, a name like that, you'd think, ah, it must be James Wesley Rawls or Matt Bracken or Alex Jones, something in that genre. It was written by Ted Koppel, Nightline Ted Koppel. He went through and interviewed everyone, including Janet Napolitano, about an attack on the power grid. And essentially, the government says, we have no preparations. No, the large power transformers are vulnerable because of the Metcalf station attack. And that's what got Ted Koppel writing the book. And it just really seems lately the media, government, are pushing out cyber attack pretty heavily. And it was even in the debates. It's been in the last two State of the, State of the Union addresses. So when the mainstream media is pushing something, pushing something, no. Well, here's a side question. Do you think they're just trying to scare us? Or is this something we really need to be concerned about? Because this book, it's almost a how-to manual. I mean, it it's details exactly how to take out the grids. Now, imagine if they took out the eastern grid, you know, and then we all start flooding to Texas and the western grid. Because we know we're not going to have power for the next 18 months. What do you think about this? Thanks, man. Have a great day. So, funny story here. Uh, when this book came out, I got an email from a publicist for Ted Koppel asking if I would be interested in reviewing this book. And I responded with, well, since this washed-up retread of a, a, a has-been uh, mainstream media type uh, had to steal the name of somebody else's book in order to come up with a title and couldn't even be original enough to do that, I'm not interested. Of course, I was referring to David Crawford's book, Lights Out, which is in the – it's not just the same title. It's in the same vein, right, except David's was a novel. Um I really wasn't interested in, and I looked at the marketing that they had put around it, and I already was like, this is over-the-top hype. This is designed to sell based on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is FUD marketing, and it's what it is, and it's what the book is. 
Is there a risk of cyber attack affecting our grid? Yes. Yes. Are we prepared for it? Nope. Nope. Like when, when you say, like, do we have a plan for what to do if it happens? Not really. No. Nope. So aren't we scared? Aren't you scared shitless about it? No. And here's why. Every person that actually has engineering knowledge and power equipment knowledge that's reviewed this book has basically said, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. All his interviews and discussions and information to follow up like beltway sources, what, lobbyists, politicians. It's like he didn't talk to a single engineer when he wrote a book that he tried to make as an engineering level book on some levels. So I just think that you have a guy that was it was time for him to go away and he didn't want to go away and he wanted to be relevant. So he picked a hot topic to talk about. And then everybody's like, oh, but it's Ted Koppel. So what? He's a, he's a, he's a, a washed-up mainstream media hack retread. That's, I, I have no credibility because of his name. The, the fact that we do need more security around our electrical grid. We know this without reading Ted Koppel's book. But, but the truth is there's a lot more fail-safes built into the system than Ted Koppel infers. And he probably doesn't know this because he didn't actually talk to people that actually do it for a living. You see, if I was going to write this book on the, the vulnerability of our electrical grid, I would go and I would find people that are like chief-level engineers of a power plant and line-level engineers. Right? I, what, what do you, I'd talk to the guys that are in the field that run the power substations, that run the power generation. I'd talk to all those people. And when you read this book, it comes off as though he did that, but he didn't. Because there's so much, it's so much it sounds technical, it's technically wrong, or sounds technical and isn't, and it's conjecture and hearsay. If you want to know, is this car safe? Well, talk to people that have built cars. Both the ones that built the car that say it's safe, and how do you build it and how do you make it safe, and people that have built other cars and say, what is your analysis of how they built this car? Because they know how car engineering and automobile works. Okay? And you talk to mechanics that work on the car and say, what's your opinion of the car and its safety? Talk to people that have driven the car. How does it handle, etc. Not You don't go talk to politicians and lobbyists, beltway sources, and other reporters and determine, well, the car is safe or not safe. And just because your name's Ted Koppel doesn't mean that you're qualified to do that. And, and, and do it the wrong way, and it's still it's still good. It's still legitimate. I just think he wanted to sell books. What do you do to prepare for it? Well, hell, what do we do to prepare all the time? Going without electrical power, you prepare to deal without systems of support. What do I think would happen if we had a cyber attack? I don't think it would be anywhere near as bad as they make it out to be. I think it would it would be somewhat contained, and I think that maybe they could shut it off, but just kind of like. They, they talk about like transformers vibrating and exploding and melting down. It, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. And it's it's almost like people want something to be afraid of to justify preparedness. The type of preparedness I've been trying to teach you for over eight years now is being a responsible adult in 2016. Things can go wrong. And I, I would put it to you a completely different way, too, on some levels. If somehow they can do it, and they do do it, we'll have to deal with it. And you worrying about it doesn't make your life better today. 
And there's, there's like, how do you prepare for the whole United States to go dark for five years? Well, you can't. I don't care how much you store up. You can't. So there's things that are outside of your control. I mean, it would be like, you may say, Jack, you know what I just found out? I found out 30,000 people a year get killed on the highway. And I'm afraid that I'm going to get killed on the highway now. How do I prepare to get killed on the highway? You know? Well, you drive safe. You make sure you have good equipment and all. But in the end, I can't tell you're not going to end up dead. Smack, gravel truck, you're done. Right? So do you sit around worrying about that? You, you can't. Because it, it shuts down your ability to live your life. So take all this stuff with a grain of salt. There will always be people, especially in our industry, especially in the preparedness, self-sufficiency world, taking every little thing and hyping it beyond what it really is. Because it sells. Because people want to be afraid. Because being afraid is being entertained. That's why people go see scary movies. They know they're going to be afraid, but they also know they're going to be entertained. And they want to justify their decisions. I justify my decision to prepare very simply. Shit goes wrong. And when it does, I don't want to be hit sideways with it. So I prepare as best I can. And that's all you can ever do. All right? Anyway, with that, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider supporting us by joining the Member Support, support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You'll see all of the great vendors that you'll get discounts from. You'll see all the other great benefits you'll get. And you'll be supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Remember, what you heard today was straight talk from a straight shooter. Uh, I actually research this stuff. I come up with well-informed decisions. I give you uh, well-informed conclusions. I give those to you, and I still say, hey, you do further research. You make decisions for yourself, and I don't hype stuff. Keep that in mind. Think about that when you think about whether or not you want to support the work we do here. The other way you can support this show is to do your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com, and uh, from there you can click a link, go to Amazon, and buy whatever it is that you want to buy. And uh, when you get to Amazon to do your shopping, it doesn't cost you any more uh, than, it, than it would have if you had not gone to T-Spaz. It doesn't really even take much more time. And then we get credit for the items you buy on Amazon, and that supports our show. That's the easiest, most painless way that I know of to support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. And on that page, you'll also see a link where you can see the item of the day. And I fixed that. And when you go there next time, you'll see what I did to make it just dead simple. Uh, you can actually click a link and they'll say, see all of the items, including the most recent one will be at the top. So what is today, uh, today's item? It's a twofer. It's a twofer and it's a good one. It is an igloo stainless and plastic latch. Okay. Stainless and plastic latch for igloo coolers. This obviously is no good to you unless you own igloo coolers, but I know in our world, most people have one or two of those really big, giant, white igloo coolers because they're awesome for what they are. And they, they're, they're a good price. They hold ice for a few days. Great tool. There's a weak spot on them. It's the hinges or, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the hafts. So I have the, 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 the stainless steel and plastic latch and stainless steel hinges up for the item of the day today. Because here's what happens. You're going to think I'm spying on you or something. You buy your white cooler, and after a while, the hinge breaks off of it. And some of you just live with it, except you don't like that it doesn't close anymore, right? It kind of sucks. And since it's not being latched down, it doesn't seal quite as good, and it doesn't hold ice quite as good, but you just live with it. 
And then some of you, you take a different approach. You're at the store someday at like Bass Pro Shops or something like that, or you find out you can get these things online, and you buy replacement hinges, and they're made out of plastic, or your replacement hasp made out of plastic. And you put them on there, and after about a year, they also break. Because when you bend plastic back and forth enough times, son of a gun, it breaks. It just does. It's how plastic works. So eventually you give up and become one of those people that live with it because you're tired of put, you know buying these things for seven eight bucks a piece, putting them back on there only to have them break. So this solves that problem. It's plastic where it needs to be plastic so it can latch, but the hinge part on the on the latch is stainless steel, and the hinges for the back, if you have bad hinges on the back, are all stainless steel. If you can work a screwdriver, you can install them and you can solve your problem. So you can check that out and other things at tspaz.com. And for those of you with, you know, great coolers that have broken hinges at seven, eight bucks a piece for two hasps, 14 bucks, you can make it good as new. In fact, you make it better than new. And that was a lesson we should have learned from our fathers. People in my generation, our dads did not throw stuff away, man. They, they fixed whatever they could. And they would say sometimes it's good as new. And a lot of times they would say it's better than new. This is one of those things that's better than new. I would almost consider when I, if I buy another cooler, just going ahead and get a set of these things to begin with. And just throw it, put the put the plastic ones away as a spare, and go ahead and put the metal on them, and just upgrade it. Is the way I would look at it. Uh, they do come one hinge. I'm sorry, two hinges, but the, the the hasp is a single hasp because not all coolers have two, so that's why they do it that way. Also, I have you really want to look at this uh, review if you're th thinking about getting these because. You'll see a whole bunch of really angry people talking about, I can't return it, and it doesn't fit. It says it fits, and it doesn't fit. That's because they're putting it on wrong. They're designed a little bit differently. So when you put them on, you basically put them on with the hinge bent in from underneath instead of laying flat. And if you put it on laying flat, it comes down too much, and it doesn't clip. But if you put it on the right way, it clips. I have two pictures, one installed the wrong way, one installed the right way. Uh, so all the one-star people need to just learn how to work a screwdriver and how to put a hinge on or a, a hasp on. So that's the kind of stuff I try to bring you with T-SPAS. Not just, hey, buy this stuff, but here's stuff to fix problems in your life, and here's how to use it. Here's the gotchas to look out for, tspaz.com. That brings me to uh, the closing song of the day today, and uh, this is by Styx, and it's called The Grand Illusion. I'll just let that speak for itself. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be back tomorrow with the Friday show to end the week out. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 